1: Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, FIFTY at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology. I'm your host, Ali Zerdjan. Today, I'm joined by Karen Rignell, Community and Leadership Development Professor at the University of Kentucky. We'll be talking about her book, An Elusive Common, Land, Politics, and Agrarian Rurality, published in 2021 by Cornell University Press. Thank you very much, Karen, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start by taking our listeners to the beginnings of this book. How did you come to your work as an anthropologist in southeastern Morocco and to this book project in particular? Uh, Origin
1: stories such as this always weave together the the intellectual and the personal. So I I would be lying if I said that these were started from purely thematic um, or or scholarly reasons. Partly was a, uh, an accident of my own trajectory initially doing community development work and public policy where I ended up in southern Morocco uh, in, the, uh, in the early 90s and began doing uh, kind of, at that time, kind of integrated world development projects. And I, I absolutely loved it. It was a beautiful, beautiful, rich, diverse, and kind of complex place. I came to the issues, though, most prominently, I think, because of my own trajectory through the Middle East. I'm uh, Egyptian-American, and I went to high school in Egypt, and, uh, and I initially just assumed that my affiliations would be with, with, with Cairo and with Egypt moving forward. But an accident, again, of history brought me to a community development internship, and I got a, a chance to experience another Middle East and North African country. And so I've been going back ever since, um, ever since the mid-90s in different capacities. And, and so there's a sedimentation of interest and relationships and history uh, that made it easy for me to go back when I re- sort of returned to academia in, in 2010. So even though there are um, kind of mentor, many interwoven threads, uh, I, I really have an incredible kind of personal and effective attachment uh, to this, to this place that defies so much, um, preconceptions of what the is, of what the Middle East or North Africa should or can be. So, uh, and quite frankly, I needed a place where I could do my PhD research, uh, really quickly. I, I again went back as a non-traditional grad student and I, I often tell this because I do want, um, I do want us to sort of pull back the veil a little bit on, on what the, you know, what the dissertation and what the sort of intellectual development process is. And sometimes it's about getting it done in practical ways. And, uh, I knew people, they were able to introduce me, um, to the right, um, kind of, uh, key points, um, of contact. And from there, these relationships are, are what started to spur my interest in some of the rural land rights and, um,
0: and, uh, and sort of extraction questions that I'm now dealing with. Yeah, thank you very much for taking us through not just, you know, the questions about the book, but truly the trajectory, um, both personal and professional, that took you to this place. Um, and, you know, I want to go not back, but yeah, I want to speak a little bit more about the title of the book. Like for me, you know, for this podcast, I read many books, sometimes... You know, I find it very rare that titles of books really capture what they're about. And for me, an elusive common was a great example. So can you tell us how you use an elusive common and how you push back against romanticizing the commons through this concept?
1: Elusive common is a story of 50 years of agrarian change, but really a a long jure of Social, agroecological, political transformations in one uh, set of oases in southeastern Morocco. So, it's a riparian oasis. Uh, these that means it's it's uh, fed by a river and it's in this sort of relatively high mountain range, and so it has a, a very particular conjuncture of um of sort of themes that come together for me. One is historically. This is an area that based uh, its oasis economy on a combination of livestock production. So people moved herds up and down the mountain of sheep, camels, goats, um, and then also uh, intensive oasis uh, agricultural production. And I was interested in what are the relationships between these different land use systems, uh, particularly in the context of an extremely arid, a region that's experiencing progressively more environmental stressors, but historically has had a really well-adapted land use system that's very intricate, very adapted to the environmental kind of conditions of the area. What I try to capture here in this book is how migration, incorporation into a, a, a national polity, but also a global economy during the French colonial period um, became a series of, of resources, opportunities, and constraints for groups, individuals, to refashion their relationship to each other and to the land. This it was uh, the sort of changes, a large migration movement out um, to work in the coal mines of, of France and Germany and um, in the factories and, and service jobs of, of uh, Holland and, and, and Belgium that migration experience was transformative because it enabled those workers to send back remittances and it enabled different groups to challenge a racialized set of hierarchies. That is the ground upon which I can then explore questions that really shape um, world places all over the world, which is what does the contemporary moment look like um, socio in terms of global market pressures? And while I always want to um, highlight the sort of uniqueness of each place, I think mm-hmm. southeastern Morocco is also emblematic of processes and really marginalized, especially arid zones, of how people are both creative, politically active, and then also really finding ways to make uh, to make their way in the sort of interstices of, of, of global and national politics. The sort of rural southeast of Morocco is is typical of a lot of kind of global south sort of spaces that are in this kind of double bind that are both sort of in always interminable decline and under constant threat and conversely always have um, a sort of veneer of a romantic or idealist uh, sort of purity associated with them. So if You know, either they're backwards, or we need to kind of recapture that sort of naive sense of of relationship to the environment, or to custom, or or to tradition. And so, elusive common for me was a way to refer to this tension um, without, uh, hopefully, buying into some of the limiting kind of concepts or framing um, that we don't actually have to take these received categories. Commoning is a sort of central anchor for the book where I, I, I'm seeing how incredibly um, kind of generative it is as a, as a political mantra right now as well as an analytic tool. Like there are reasons it has a resurgence right now. And so going to a place where there are traditions of commoning, um, it seems to make a lot of sense then to really examine the way this concept is being used now. Um, I chose common, and I think I mentioned this in the book, as opposed to sort of commons, uh, to, to try to think about it as a verb, to try to think about it uh, in, in, in many different valences, that it's it's about life in common. Um, but it is always elusive because both of these sort of theoretical um, commitments that are sort of attached to commoning as, a, as this like saving political grace uh, we can no longer really turn to community as this sort of comfortable home, um, often also for the anthropologist as much as for anybody else. Um, and uh, and so now the commons is sort of taking that place for progressive or critical theorists um, who are not necessarily as ready to take on some of those paradoxes or uncomfortable um uncomfortable sort of
0: tensions that exist in the name. Well, I'm certainly glad you took that on. Uh, and, you know, something that I really liked in your response is, you know, how you also think in different scales like in Global South, thinking about, you know, common in the global south, for example, and I want to speak a little bit more about the global portion of this work. So in the book, you show us that at the heart of land claims in rural Morocco, there is a legal pluralism. But what I found even more refreshing was how you weave migration into this picture. So what was at stake for you in putting migration in conversation with land politics? Well, at the end of the day one needs to pay attention to what
1: what is happening, right I mean we we all we are all bounding our topics um, in in some way and and we have to exclude certain things. but migration is so central to the transformations of the last you know at this point um, almost a hundred years it, it would it would actually be impossible to talk about these land politics without these global engagements and I don't believe in anthropology. We need anymore to, to establish that world places are connected, that they're cosmopolitan. Like this is not a, this is not a project we need to take on anymore. Um, but, but you still need to sort of account for how these different scalar processes sort of connect um, and not make assumptions about, about the way they operate. And, um, and the, Migration has been a primary lens through which this region has been seen, both in the scholarship, but also in the sort of public policy. Um, And so there too, uh, it's, it's a challenge actually to figure out where to place migration. And alongside that, where to place racial politics, because again, the migration politics and the racial politics are the two primary lenses through which um, changes in this area have been seen, and rightfully so. They're not; they have not been wrong. The other theorists or the or the sort of public commentary about these issues. Um, so, if anything, the question is: How do I pull back, or perhaps bro- broaden the lens to sort of see see it through a different um, kind of, uh, sort of set of frameworks or concepts? Um, so I don't really see myself as part of migration studies um, necessarily. Uh, again, that's a choice. We all have to make choices for what our, our books are gonna do, but that doesn't mean that migration then doesn't really set the terms for so much of what happens. Um, and it's a way also to, to push back. And here it's the material that's, that's telling us this. It's not simply my own political commitment. Um, to push back against the idea that sort of um, land politics are inherently populist or primordial or, or about sort of returning to, to roots, that they are, um, what's at stake for me in bringing migration politics is what's at stake for, for the people involved, which is really using land as a fulcrum uh, around which they're going to make claims and, and, and leverage economic processes and families and households. To make so many other kinds of claims, so I wanted migration to be both front and center, but to be decentered as well. Because one thing that I felt like could use a ref- sort of a, 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 a refresh is um, a sort of an agrarian studies perspective. Because they, there's been a pass through of kind of critical agrarian studies in Morocco in like the, the 80s um, and uh, and late 70s. Um, from Euro-American scholars, but also from Moroccan and uh, uh, Moroccan scholars. And so I feel like it was time to revisit the that lens.
0: Yeah, and, you know, I really appreciate you laying out what we don't need to hash out again about, for example, rural studies in anthropology or, you know, re-establishing that rural spaces are global spaces. But you also bring us, you know, interesting way, new ways to think about Rurality, you specifically have concepts like new rurality and new commoning, which I think are very important. And I'd love to hear more about what is new in the rurality and forms of commoning that your interlocutors led you to. And perhaps in what novel ways do rurality and commoning inform each other? Well, it is always
1: challenging to take on the term new because it stops, obviously, being mm-hmm. new ra- rather quickly. So I did not kind of um, settle on that as a as my own frame. It's actually a reference to a rural sociologist out of Holland, Jan van der Ploeg who, who wrote a book called The New Rurality. And to me, um, he really described in very empiricist, but also broad kind of theoretical um ways kind of what is happening with peasantries, uh, uh, which he defines in very particular ways. So this is a is this is a particular reference to to his book, which admittedly only a slice of kind of critical agrarian studies people you know would necessarily know or be interested in. Um, but to me, it's really important uh, to to revisit these role dynamics with a fresh eye and also with a fairly. Um, kind of beginner's eye or, or open mind in the sense that uh, we we know there there's no doubt that we are in a sort of crisis moment and um, sort of socioecologically and it's not a moment it's an era right and um, so the, this is not. Um, not something that, that we need to dispute, but it can't be the only lens in which we, we see rural peoples and, and, and spaces because it really does deprive them of any political agency or sense of subjectivity or anything. And so, um, so for me, this new rurality is about a very explicit effort, particularly coming out of critical agrarian studies with a sort of m- Marxist rethinking of that traditional, um, uh, disparaging of, of of rural politics, like there are many people who have been working out of the Marxist tradition or taken issue with the sort of sack of potato labeling that Marx gave to rural politics. And so to me, new morality is about engaging with all of the sort of social mobilizations, the quotidian politics, but also the movements and and challenging some of the dominant frames that have been used traditionally to capture these movements.
0: Yeah, I found it so, you know, so interesting that how you mentioned your maybe reservations or unsettledness with new. So I'm wondering if you could tell us more about, you know, your perspective on novelty or claiming the new uh, in agrarian studies.
1: Well, it's been heartening to see in the last 10 years this like, efflorescence of interest and I think it comes along with that sense of urgency about um, kind of critical environmental studies. I think that the interest in land and critical agrarian studies is really linked with this increasing environmental um, kind of critique coming out of anthropology and humanities as well. So, um, but my my reservations also have to do with uh, my my sense of sort of skepticism about um, the need for novelty. I'm not trying to think about um, large um, canvas historical theorizing, but people have such complex relationships to their own memory and to to history and the legacies of of kind of the colonial reordering of of juridical and political space are so important that um, I want to always toggle between a deeply historical or historicist um, approach and an understanding and a freshness of what is happening now. New things are being demanded of us, and how do we attend to the various ways in which um, these folks are expressing those things? And I'm in part interested in that because um, it is often um, kind of labeled in, maybe I would say, uh, I'm trying not to generalize, but in some of the sort of activist European coverage of some of the Euro- uh, environmental issues that I'm kind of looking at is often sort of seen as a place where there's not in a, you know, a mature environmental movement. Um, there, it, environmental justice hasn't arrived in Morocco. Um, and to the extent that it has, you know, its campaigns in Casablanca or in those, the cities to remove plastic bags. And this is definitely something I wanted to push back against, um, because uh, if we look at the the newer reality and the kind of politics involved in the commoning that I'm describing, they don't necessarily employ the sort of social movement language or these globalized discourses, and they are often um, extremely effective. So we have to attend to these other modes of, of um, kind of working
0: and claiming land. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because, I mean, as a reader, the book came across to me as one that really eschews presentism and it really reads like a long durée analysis of the dynamic struggles around land. So I'm curious about the role of historical analysis for you in understanding reality anew or again. (laughs) Yeah, so
1: similar to to the way migration or race sort of weave in. I, I, I don't know how you do this work without a strong understanding of these a sort of a historical kind of currents. You cannot understand uh, land politics anywhere in Morocco, um, even though they're incredibly diverse, these politics in different regions, without thinking through the sort of legacy of colonial, um, colonial legal and, and bureaucratic structures. And sort of figuring out exactly how that happens is an ongoing, you know, project for me. But I think um, even though I was not able to do archival work for this book, and I, I definitely felt that, but I, you know, I, I, I moved on ahead with with whatever I could say um, based on my oral histories and the sort of published material that I did um, that I did work with. I I feel like it. Um, it is maybe a legacy also of my initial graduate training in the mid nineties when everyone was, was, uh, you know, thinking about what, um, archeology of knowledge looks like and, and, um, and, and, and working genealogy into the titles of, of everything we wrote. So that's always going to be a legacy is, is that sort of Foucauldian moment, um, as well, but I do see, um, some of the readings of. Kind of how collective land politics are working today in Morocco are off because they haven't attended to these colonial legacies and and that and particularly so in um, in the area of kind of women's access to land. You know we can talk about that if if um, if we've got time.
0: Yeah, of course. I mean, I'd love for you to speak more on that because throughout the book you pay careful attention attention to gender in many ways. So from struggles over land. Um, to how you conducted fieldwork yourself. So I'd love to hear more about the role of gender, both theoretically and methodologically in an elusive common.
1: Well, as as we know, everything is gendered. So it becomes incredibly important to think about how kind of uh, gendered s- s- social relations, access to, to resources and power, uh, shape different social formations access to to these different types of of, of sort of cultural and, and and environmental resources. So it, it really is extremely important. Um, you could easily have organized the whole book around a feminist political ecology and really center that gender analysis. And for me, I was in a place where I really wanted to sort of tease through some of the agrarian issues um, that come out of land, um, land as a as a factor of production in the Marxist tradition, land as a sort of generator of meaning, as a, as a site for, um, for for so much politics. That was my interest. And so again, you have to balance things. My uh, introduction was already way too unwieldy, so that you know that was a, a, a sort of editorial choice and a sort of training choice because I didn't have the same kind of training but you have to attend to these also in um, uh, because it'll they'll attend to you if you don't um, in terms of doing and uh, doing the research. I benefited a lot from having had already extensive relationships, extensive experience, knowing how to navigate this um, this particular this particular place but I um, you know I had a side project that still hasn't gotten published, so it's um, you know coming on a while so it's a, you know a work of history at this point where during downtime uh, for my sort of primary field work, I, I interviewed some of the sex workers in the market town where I lived and um, and so really was able to understand how sort of uh, family relationships, um, Different forms of sort of st- social um, social pressure, but uh, but also social connection um, open up new possibilities for for women in various pre- precarious positions. Yes. So that is hopefully going to be my one day expression of a, a, a very gendered analysis, um, more so than in the book. Um, but I benefited from being able to move in between sort of. Primarily male interviewees for some of the production information, but always talking through um, the same dynamics with women in the families that I interviewed.
0: Yeah. And, you know, we've been talking about lifting the veil in this conversation. And something I really appreciated about the book is how, you know, you acknowledge that your family was there, right? And you interacted with families, like you acknowledge. know, your child being there and so on. And I thought it was really refreshing, you know, really going beyond this image of the anthropologist as the atomistic individual talking to other individuals. Um, So, yeah, I'd love for you to talk about first your choice to include that in the book, but also, you know, thinking about fieldwork as maybe something collective or something um, that your family was part of or, you know, however you took it. Thank you for that question.
1: I um, made a choice to sort of explain my social positioning. Um, it really, and that social positioning really facilitated the whole book or and the whole research. And so it it would feel weird to not say that. Um, but also, I I I don't particularly feel comfortable with a ex- extremely personal or sort of, you know, um, confessional approach. I, I, I'm not a good enough writer for that. And I, you know, I don't know that we're in that moment anymore. Um, so I, I didn't want to give it more for sure. Um, but I did feel like I, uh, I needed to, and I'm going to also present it as a caveat because there were a lot of things I couldn't do as a result. So I think one of the reasons perhaps that um, gender is per is not quite as central uh, is that if I were to really focus a lot of my research on um, on gender and specifically working with women more intentionally, and, and here it's gonna be a pretty binary sort of gender uh, sort of universe, um, I didn't have good enough hate. I just didn't speak Berber well enough. and And I would not have been able to capture an expressive culture and an effective dimension had i um, had i uh, tried to do that so you know in many ways this is an anthropology book that's not a ton about culture because i didn't feel like i could give that um that sort of treatment it deserves so like for example catherine hopman uh you know her work on southern morocco extremely rooted in her linguistic anthropology and her mastery and it, it, you know you you can't kind of cover that up and so more uh, should you, like, I, I feel like you can do great work with what you're given. And I just needed to tell everyone, this is what I was given. And it, and it was such a challenging year, personally, so rich, but also I, I, you know, I didn't, I wasn't living with a family learning Tesho hate all. And I had 12 months and that was it. Um, I have subsequently been able to go back enough that, um, uh, you, you know, I, I I'm, I'm, I'm feeling like, the research is depthful. But yeah, part of that sort of family um, kind of dynamic is to also to center these sort of kind of kinship relations, which are still incredibly important.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And thanks so much for sharing that. I think it's, you know, very helpful uh, for people to hear who are similarly trying to navigate life at large and doing this type of work. Um, and my next question is, you know, expounding more on your methodology. So I read this book, even though you know, I know you're an anthropologist, I read this book as a deeply interdisciplinary one, and I was very struck by how quantitative methods are expertly woving into your ethnographic narrative. So how did you put numbers and survey data into conversation with ethnographic fieldwork, which I feel is, I don't know, rather unorthodox in ethnographic books, and it's really refreshing. Well, that
1: is incredibly kind of you. I have been very inspired by the work of Jane Geyer, who I think does this beautifully and and is not new. Um, You know, she had done this kind of work going back decades, and there is um, a sort of conversation that she has been able to have between these different modes of interpretation that I found really inspiring. I mean, I had to make the book less of just like an homage to Jane Geyer because it was very, I was very um, imitative of, of, of her approach. And I think what I, so I'm so lucky also that I was able to do this because I don't think you can really do it as an individual soul anthropologist and during like your dissertation field work, you know, year or two years. I I, I feel like it I mean, many people I'm sure could do it. Because what I what I, I do think there is a progression that worked for me in doing the ethnographic field work and knowing what kinds of questions to ask, of the more quantitative work. And uh and I I I've had some sort of um, lay training in economics. I don't do the quantitative, um, and thankfully, because the fact that I didn't do well in economics is why I ended up probably in anthropology. But um, but I I do with all of the critiques that we all you know know and that I share of of, of neoclassical economics. I I'm, I do believe that there are a lot of really great tools and a lot of really great conversations that can be had using some of those. Um, sort of analytic approaches. And so I had the chance to do uh, a postdoc that was basically like another doctoral dissertation where I worked with an economist and I learned how to do a, a, a household survey. And and that was ideal. Um, but I wrote the first draft of the book, like literally did a book workshop and it did not have any of the data in it because I did that after my dissertation fieldwork and I didn't know how to integrate integrate it and um, and then I got a reviewer uh, who said, you know I need more evidence. Um, uh, it, it, I, I suspect that the reviewer was a geographer and I am probably as much in geography at this point as I am in anthropology. so I really took that to heart I'm like, well, if this reviewer is sort of asking for more. An anthropologist may not necessarily, there are going to be readers out there who do. And so I was like, I got to just bite the bullet and integrate my, my data, um, in part our data, because I did it with uh, Yoko Kusanose here at the university of Kentucky and, um, and also with my Moroccan partners. And, uh, that was a, an experience I would recommend to anybody It's just to push, put yourself in another disciplinary world and challenge yourself with different, um, different, um, methods. i am never, um, I'm never going to be doing, uh, econometric analysis, but it sure was great to understand the kinds of questions and the sort of reasoning. Um, I understand sampling so much better. I'm a much better reader now of, of this material. And I'm so grateful to that reviewer because it forced me to grapple with this question. of like, it feels so artificial to have my little description of the cafe and then like present a chart. I was like, so how do I analytically make it interesting and not just like, um, you know, basically combining oil and water? And um, and I, I feel like in
0: the end, uh, uh, it worked. Yeah, I agree. And you know, it sounds very really nice to have, you know, this kind of reviewer whose <laughs> commentaries are actually helpful. Um, so before me and. I'd also love to hear about the afterlives of an illusical Common. So the book's been out and about for a couple of years now. And as we know, they take lives of their own when they're out in the world. So was there anything that surprised you or pleased you or both in the book's reception so far? Well, this, uh, the book came out in 2021.
1: So my 12-city book tour was canceled no, no book tour. There was no book tour. Um, uh, (laughs) Not for me. (laughs) Um, But there is something um, that in retrospect is is special. To When I hear about one person who read it, um, when I hear someone engage with it, um, it is really heartening because it sort of went out in the world at a time of, of of just a lot of uncertainty and great kind of personal challenge. And so when that sort of, um, uh, parallel, uh, sort of set of, of events are happening, like the pandemic and all of this, uh, really sort of challenging period for my family. And then an occasional email coming in, like at this point, I was just so happy to have the book out. It's been a very kind of special thing to just connect with people about, um, mm. about some of the questions and issues. So that's been lovely. I, 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 you, I, I never expect a huge readership. We're academics. And I, I mean, I'm in a really specific corner as well, but, um, just to feel like, um, there are people I can have this kind of conversation with is, is, has been really nice. And to me, um, that book has uh, enabled any thinking I have about, um, about the rural Southeast. And so I don't mention kind of mining or solar energy. I think once in the book, like I finally uh, sort of put a reference, I think into the conclusion, but sort of it's that work, like spending time with you know, farmers and harvesting wheat and spending that really kind of micro um, a- ethnographic time, that has enabled me now to work on like, you know, copper mining or uh, solar energy, because I, I really understood how these big processes now relate to the the kind of intimate lives of, of regular people. And that has been so formative. Um, um,
0: oh, that's so wonderful. And- you know, I really hope that this episode also becomes another wrestle through which new connections um, can be forged for you. Uh, so lastly, what comes after this book? What are you currently researching, reading, or thinking about?
1: Well, I am in the middle of a collaborative research project. So I, we, we know our work is always inherently collaborative, but this is an explicitly collaborative An engaged research project in the kind of critical participatory action research tradition of um, comparing residents' experiences of a a large-scale solar utility, Um, so uh, an installation that will have about 800 megawatts in also the southeast of Morocco, but not the exact same area, and then comparing their experiences with residents' experiences of a copper mine also about 200 kilometers away from where I um, did the research for this book. And so we are looking at land tenure dynamics about governance. All of my kind of thinking about how land figures into people's kind of temporal scans also around politics, as well as their kind of the social embeddedness of rural politics, uh, Have um have really shaped the way I understand some of this um, energy transition and extraction work. So I love the agrarian dimensions of my work and of this book, and that's uh, really more uplifting than uh, working uh, around the copper mine. Um, And and eventually I'll go back to it, um, but I have also understood the importance of expanding our lens of what agrarian is. And that you can't understand agrarian rural spaces without looking at um, extraction um, in all of its forms. And renewable energy is 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 definitely being rolled out in places like Morocco. And you know, if we can use a term, global south, um, in inherently exploitative ways, the term isn't great because I'm doing the same research in in Central Appalachia. These sort of um, m- modes of extraction happen everywhere, so we're not you know, not simply in kind of um, putatively global South countries.
0: Yeah, thank you very much for sharing that with us and we'll be looking forward to the results of that work too. But for now, thank you very much, Karen, for joining us and for your insights. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. It's the pleasure is all mine. I'm your host, Aliza Jan. This discussion of an elusive common, Land, Politics, and Agrarian Rurality, published in 2021 by Cornell University Press, is brought to you by the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.